Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're discussing the second section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I think we've got a lot to do tonight, so let's just get straight into it. Well, as with last time, the first thing I really want to discuss here is the allusions, both literary and to just things in the world that can maybe give us a hint of what Wolf is doing with the background of the story. Again, this is like the practice of close reading. Last time, we really neglected to mention the most important literary illusion of this story, which is Cerberus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I want to start there because... In the section that we read, we have the explicit evocation of the title, right? Number five is brought up, and we're told that there are three others, and the number is either too high or too low. It gives us a sense that the narrator himself is the fifth head of Cerberus. Now, Cerberus is the three-headed dog, usually regarded as three-headed. And in this story, it's three-headed, that guards the gates of the underworld. It is the offspring of Typhon and Echidna. Now, Typhon is a very important figure in Wolf's works in the whole solar cycle. So that's important to keep in mind. And he's monstrous. And of course, in this story, we have the novel called The Fifth Head of Cerberus, the Cerberus statue outside of the home. And three of the five are accounted for by Janine herself, the father, and the simulation. So, Glenn, what I want to ask you, kind of having explained that just a little bit, is how do you make sense of this imagery, this use of the illusion? And who would you predict is the grinning head, the head looking with tolerant interest and the snarling head so far as depicted in this story. And also maybe what does this Cerberus statue as the symbol of the home, the same way maybe the crippled monkey is the symbol of the father say about the Maison du Chien? Yeah, this is a really great question. Well, really, it's like seven questions sort of packed into one. So <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, I think, you know, that's your trope, much like my trope is to, to ask, you know, if someone is Jesus. So, uh, you know, we've got to lean on our strengths here. Right. Um, one of the strengths I'm going to lean on here is the fact that I you know, have a degree in classics. So I'm going to talk a little bit about ancient Greek literature here, uh, maybe as a way of getting around to addressing the questions that you've posed. You very shrewdly said that Cerberus is usually considered to have three heads. The the text where we actually get this descent from Typhon is one of the oldest Greek texts that we have. This is a, a poem called the Theogony by a, a guy named Hesiod, and uh, Theogony meaning uh, the birth of the gods, which is, so we get the parentage of all of these gods and you know, supernatural creatures who exist in, in Greek mythology. In that text, he has 50 heads. And I think there's great evidence that Wolf knows this text very well uh, that we'll get when we uh, you know, eventually cover the, the Soldier series, which is you know, set in classical Greek world. One of the other main sources that we actually have for Greek mythology is not poetry like Hesiod and Homer, that supplies a lot of it, uh, but is actually visual art that we get through archaeology. A lot of times this can be sculptures that we have on buildings, temples in particular, but we have a lot of pottery left from the ancient Greek world, and it, it's painted, and I'm, I'm sure that people have seen this, this beautiful black and Red might be important here, attic pottery. And Cerberus is frequently found on this, uh, for good reason, the underworld is often depicted on these vases. And there, Cerberus tends to have two heads. 
the three heads of Cerberus is actually something that really dominates our modern understanding of Cerberus. And, you know, anyone who's read Harry Potter, that's not the second time I've mentioned Harry Potter in this episode. I'm going to have to go for the hat trick. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'll find a way. <laughs> but we, we all know that Cerberus has three heads. And, and the reason for that is that, although that is a tradition in the Greek literature, this is what Ovid says in his magnificent poem, The Metamorphosis, which is where we get our really fantastic, really awesome description of Orpheus's descent into the underworld to rescue Eurydice. And 90% of Western painting is based on Ovid's metamorphoses. And so this is how this has really entered our zeitgeist that Cerberus has three heads, which is something the ancients might have actually argued about. I actually have a point in saying all of that, which is to say that our understanding of Cerberus is wrapped up into this descent to the underworld story in which the hero of that story lulls this guardian of hell to sleep with his music, with his song. And we should point out that early Christians conflated the identities of Christ and Orpheus in visual art, but also in literature. Some of that was actually kind of a secret way of sharing Christian symbols uh, with each other without calling attention to the fact that you were a Christian. Uh, And these are things that Wolf knows as well and might be playing with. So I'm really excited to play this little game that you've presented here about sort of identifying the three heads of the statue outside the home with figures in the story, because we are given, as you say, that there are already three heads, and they are the father, their Aunt Janine, and their Mr. Million. I'm going to say, and this is, I think, no surprise, and I would, well, I would be surprised if you disagreed with me, though that would be fun. The snarling head has to be the father figure. I mean, he is the most monstrous person in the story so far. I have to say, I think that the stoic figure, uh, the sort of non-expressive uh, head, is actually Mr. Million. And I think that the grinning figure is Aunt Janine, because I think she's having uh, something of a joke, having something of a laugh at all of this. And we might find out more about that in our later sections. Yeah, I think that's a great reading. I'm a little bit up in the air at this point between whether the grinning head and the stoic head, as you describe them, is as you describe them as Aunt Janine and Mr. Million. But I think you're right. Aunt Janine has a little mischief to her as well. She does not get the narrator in trouble for his actions, but uh, instead kind of indulges his mischief in a way that also protects his innocence. Well, and even to take this metaphor just a step further, that to think about the binaries that you've been calling such great attention to in this story, that we could even really see the father and his sister as being a binary, as being perhaps in some ways pitted against each other and see Mr. Million as the figure who's stuck between them as the center of these two poles. No, I think that's an absolutely fantastic reading. So just to bring up the last question about this, what is the symbol of Cerberus doing at this house? What does it say about the place? Right. So that's going to come full circle to to why I wanted to bring up Orpheus. If Cerberus is the thing that guards the entrance to hell, and this statue is the thing that symbolically at least guards the entrance to this house, to this brothel, then we have to think that this is hell. More importantly, in this section, we get told about you know the narrator's experiences in the deepest 
levels of this house. To get there, he has to go through a hallway that is filled with the excrement of rats. I mean, that is a descent to the underworld. While he's down there, he is maltreated. He experiences different types of illusions, and he's abused by this monstrous tyrant who may as well be the king of of hell. Right. And I think we're going to have a lot of questions by the time we get to the end of the story about what it means that this character returns to this place. It's all great stuff. I mean, I really love this story so far, but I, I think we have to move on to the next solution here, which is to Betsy Trotwood. We brought up, I think, uh, a decent amount of information about this character, and I suggested my reading of why it's in the text the way it is. But Glenn, I wanted to ask you, what do you think it is that reminds number five of Betsy Trotwood when he is with his aunt? And again, the two-part question, (laughs) (laughs) what do you make of this reference to Dickens on this distant planet where Wolf's own contemporaries' works are crumbling on library shelves? Dickens, of course, is a you know, monumental figure in the history of English literature. He is going to survive whatever is, is going to happen in our future. If anyone will make it to other planets of English literature, it will be Dickens, uh, Shakespeare, and, and Milton, I, I suspect. So I think that's something that's definitely going on here. I think there's more going on there than just Wolf's opinion of this great writer. That's going to be wrapped up in our final question about Vale's hypothesis. But yes, there is something here to Wolf saying Dickens will survive us all. Right. Well, so there is a a real, I think, tangible connection with the world building that Wolf is doing, right? Dickens is a contemporary to the society that Wolf is showing us here, the type of society. Wolf is building a spacefaring version of Gilded Age New Orleans on this planet, or at least in this city, in Port Mimizon. Dickens is contemporary to that. The early and, and mid-Victorian period is what we call that when we're talking about England rather than talking about America. So I think that's a, an, an immediate connection that he's trying to draw. And because these worlds are contemporary... Dickens is very concerned about many of the things that Wolf is bringing up about the world that he's building here, the speculative world that he's building, right? Uh, Dickens is very concerned about things like the treatment of children. He's very concerned about the treatment of workers and the role of the state in creating and protecting a middle class, uh, protecting people from economic oppressors who might like to just turn them into sex slaves, for example. Dickens is also very interested in the second generation of the Industrial Revolution. And that seems to be something that really mirrors the holographs and the robots that we have in this story, right? That there is a revolution that is going on in technology but that it is only something that is useful to the rich. And maybe even actually to quote William Gibson or paraphrase William Gibson talking about the digital revolution, which is to say that for Wolf's world here and also for the Industrial Revolution, the future had arrived, but it just wasn't evenly distributed. And I think that that's a parallel that these stories have. I think I have a totally different reading, which we'll get to in in just a little bit. Once we move through these illusions, all of these questions are kind of wrapped up in a point I will try to wrap us up with at the very end of our discussion. Next, we have the reference to the demi-mondaines and the nymph du bois. Demi-mondaine is a word that really came into popular usage after Alexander Dumas's son, who was also a famous 
playwright and novelist, wrote a play called Le Demi-Monde, which was about people who live a flagrantly hedonistic lifestyle. And here the Demi-Mondaine refers primarily to prostitution. And this became kind of like a fad word that burst into usage and quickly died out. And so the the use of this old-fashioned word here is also meant to evoke this time period in France as well. Demimonde is also a term that translates just explicitly into half-world. And so we have, again, this call to the underworld and now this half-world. And I think we're meant to look at these cosmos in a really particular way. The nymph Dubois is... For me, nothing less than a reference to Lolita by Nabokov, whose narrator Humbert Humbert ceaselessly refers to the title character as a nymphette. And and I think Wolf here is doing a lot, as Nabokov did in Lolita, to cover the true nature of the, the, the kind of rot in the world with a sort of fairy tale sheen. And kind of the last bit of euphemistic language I have here is the description of these different types of women as queens. The first set are described as queens from a deck of tarot cards, which is because their skirts reflect their top uh, and obscure their bottom, and also the black queen of the chess set, these two different types. So I don't have two questions here. I just have one. What are we doing here with all of these senses all these euphemisms to describe women, particularly as it refers to this sort of really uniformly fairy tale or otherworldly descriptions. Well, I think that this equation with Lolita is absolutely brilliant. They are, as you say, both uh, stories that use florid prose to mask some genuine awfulness that is going on. And you know, to get really right to the heart of your question about all of these euphemisms for women, we have to point to this society as so far being nothing but bad for women. It also doesn't seem to be good for anyone who's not a wealthy male, that this is a world with slaves, with sex slaves, with child slaves, some of whom may also be child sex slaves to really double down on the equation with Lolita. I think that Wolf is someone who we have seen time and again be fascinated with propaganda, with the way that people use words to shape their reality, and in particular with the way that people use words to paint a picture of reality that in fact is the exact opposite of what it really is. That all of these terms, especially these beautiful French terms, serve to exoticize these women, to make them seem special and almost magical, sort of fey, when in fact they're all actually oppressed. To think about these terms being used by the narrator, someone who's growing up as a wealthy, privileged male in this society, such that he might actually even grow up to be equated with the wealthy patron who is, you know, assembling this little forest around himself on the roof, that those men not only are finding a way to use these euphemisms to sort of live with the oppression that they bestow on all of these women, but in fact, to make it not just something they should cover up, but actually to make it a feature of the world that makes them feel good. It makes them feel like they're in a fairy tale, like they're in some mythological world. So I think this is really Wolf playing around again with propaganda. That would be sort of my first answer. Yeah, that's a great answer because I think it's exactly what Humbert Humbert is doing as well. That book, Lolita, is absolutely full of this sort of fairy tale 
imagery throughout. And I think the use of the queen is a great kind of literary tool as well. This is not a world, as far as we can tell, that has any sort of royalty. And so we are, I think, stuck with the sense that queen is also a sort of exotic term, especially as it's associated with the tarot cards and the chess set. I do have something I want to ask you about the chess set as kind of this final question of the illusions before we move on to the more book club type questions. <laughs> I brought up during your recap how this method of proximity, of placing ideas in proximity of one another, is a core technique of this unreliable narrator of postmodern literature that stems from the technique of stream of consciousness to alert us to ideas that are going on. What do you take of the proximity of the chess board, the chess pieces explaining holograms in the physics book, and the ant being described as the black queen of a chess set? Well, let's just be clear what we're talking about with holographs, and maybe in a non-technical sense, but what we're talking about is an image that has no substance, right? That it, it is a phantom. Uh, to, in fact, to use the language of holographs that we get in Operation Aries, it's a ghost, right? It's not something that's actually there. I just want to call attention to how we get Aunt Janine described as the Black Queen here on, on page 28 of the edition that we're using. The narrator thinks of her as the Black Queen, a chess queen, neither sinister nor beneficent. And black only as distinguished from some white queen I was never fated to encounter. And so even this description, this elaborate simile or elaborate metaphor that he's got going on here, describing his aunt as the black queen, is in contrast to an image that he's imagining, something that he has not ever actually seen, and in fact says that he is fated to never actually see. Something that strikes me immediately about that is that this, again, is another pair. It's another binary. But that one part of this binary is imaginary, that it's unreal. It's a fantasy, just like these holographs. That's an excellent point, because I think that really speaks to what is happening with this book. There is something very deep going on so far about the artificial and the real and what the distinction is between them. And I think that's going to cut to the core of the questions, the deep questions that this story is raising about identity, about human experience, or about intelligent life experience. Uh, on that note, on the note of binaries and identity, there's actually one more thing I want to talk about before we get into some of the other questions. And this is something that I started thinking about when you were going through all of the, the euphemisms that we get for women, in particular for sex slaves at the Maison du Chien. You've already called attention to demi-mondaine as being this French term that means, you know, half world. And I just want to remind listeners that we are dealing with a planet that is part of a binary planet system, the twin planets, sister planets, in fact, is what the narrator calls them. And so that this planet that we're on is really only half of a world that is comprised of two bodies. And one of the things that I want to think about here with that relationship between the planet that we're on and St. Anne, with the home of the, the Abos, is to call attention to this idea of the nymph de bois, this nymph of the woods, which is to say this spirit, right, this fairy creature that lives in the woods, that could describe 
the abos right and 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 i really want to call back to the first episode that we did on the fifth head of cerberus in which we actually get david inventing this sort of religious and spiritual and cultural life for the abos in which he describes them as mating with trees which is what this rich man is doing up on the the roof of their house he's going to mate with this tree spirit as soon as the fireworks are over right so this is again the all of this is in relationship with each other right and this is the dark reflection this is the dark realization of david's kind of beautiful vision of what's happening on the sister planet of saint anne which is a legitimate practice of these aboriginals but here is just this kind of sick shadow i mean and we get that shadow imagery right in that text the same way the white queen doesn't exist maybe on this planet but the black queen definitely does so I want to just jump into a few book club questions uh, before we jump into Vale's hypothesis. And these are really just kind of meant to reinforce or raise some of the things that we've already talked about in the recap. The first is, what do you make of the information that is revealed to us about the narrator's experience with the holograms? We suggested some things in the recap, but I really want to focus on the child and the toy soldier. I'm going to read what the narrator says just once again. He says, well, the little boy likes the big soldier, but he wants to knock him down if he can, because a soldier's only a toy, really, but it's bigger than he is. So what's going on there? Yeah, I think there are a couple different ways to read that. But my surface level reading of that is that there's a challenge, right? The obstacle of, of just seeing if this thing that is bigger than me is actually stronger than I am. Can I push this down? Well, that'd be just a fun thing to do to try to knock this thing down. You know, it's just it's like trying to hit the ball or throw the ball as far as you possibly can run as fast as you can, right? Is this you know, something in our, our competitive nature, perhaps? And of course, you can do this to the toy soldier because it is only a thing, but you shouldn't do that to a real person. And of course, the real point here is that it resembles a real person, but it really isn't. And I think that's the theme that Wolf is going to play with here. Yeah, I think you're right. And I have the same exact reading. Again, this is, for me, just reinforces this theme in this sections that we've read of artifice and reality. We've talked about the dreams a little bit. I don't know how much more we want to say, but I really want to reinforce the technique here that Wolf is using. This is a technique that Proust employs, that all great works of literature really employ. And it's where the writer trains the reader what to pay attention to with within the text through repetition and revealed meaning. I think we see that absolutely being the case with the dreams in this section. I mentioned before that the first dream really kind of comes true, that the sense of the narrator being the observed, the observer, and the third party observing both absolutely becomes the case when he is subjected to the strange drug, the thing that alters his consciousness. But the second dream doesn't really come true yet. And we don't really know what the narrator dreams of the abos, but I think we really ought to pay attention to it when that comes about. Yeah, certainly I'm very excited about the abos. This is the coolest thing that's going on uh, in the story so far, I think. Yeah, well, with that in mind, let's just get right into Vale's hypothesis. <laughs> yes, here. please. So this section here 
really just puts a sly focus on the Aboriginal situation in this story. Let me just start by rereading Vale's hypothesis. And let me just say that we have this big section, this other conversational classroom type setting about Aboriginals in the first section we covered as well. But Vale's hypothesis, as described by the narrator, is this. Vale's hypothesis supposes, and here's a little editorial bracket, here we have the word suppose again. Yeah. Really important. Vale's hypothesis supposes the abos to have possessed the ability to mimic mankind perfectly. Vale thought that when the ships came from Earth, the abos killed everyone and took their place and the ships. So they're not dead at all. We are. What number five is suggesting here is that it actually wouldn't make a difference if the abos totally replaced the humans. Again, this section is in close proximity to number five, describing how he's able to essentially clone frogs. And this allows us to make the connections between how his thoughts are really jammed together in this story. There's something going on with cloning and imitation. This is really just straight out of the logic of this technique of writing. But Aunt Janine isn't really sure of number five's suggestion. She makes an evolutionary argument that for the abos to have done this, to have perfectly imitated humans, it would have really just signed their own death warrant as a species, as a unique species. And this is because traits need to continue to adapt and evolve or else they atrophy. First of all, Glenn, what do you make of Vale's hypothesis and Aunt Janine's response to number five's assertion? The first thing I want to do in answer to your question, Brandon, is just to reiterate again what the hypothesis really is, right? It's saying that all of the humans are not actually humans. They are, in fact, abos. And something that's implicit here in the narrator's dismissal of the significance of this is that he's saying, well... If Vale's hypothesis is true, then I'm an abo. I don't think I'm an abo. I don't possess the ability to change my form. Therefore, there can't be any distinction. But something that we are coming to learn, and in fact, something we're actually going to learn immediately after the discussion about Vale's hypothesis, is that he's probably not the biological descendant of the colonists, that he's the clone of someone who was born on Earth, such that it is completely possible that he he, his aunt, and his father are the only humans on the planet, and potentially everyone else actually is an abo and knows it. Including David, who could potentially be half an abo. I think you summed it up really well and summed up the problems caught up in this and, and the concern that if these abos have perfectly imitated humans, they have signed their death warrant. And that this sign of David's frailty that is very quickly replaced by the narrator's frailty as he's subjected to drugs speaks to these different kinds of atrophy. I think the question we need to ask is, in light of Vale's hypothesis, why is this experiment between the two boys, one biological, a descendant of the planet, and one a clone, taking place? Right. So there's certainly a way to read this, that what's going on in the basement lab that we we get to through excrement filled hallways is that the father is trying to test Vale's hypothesis. He's actually trying to establish if David is an abo and that because he knows that the narrator is a human, that might be his control in the experiments. Now, that might be 
totally untrue. It's wild speculation at this point, but it might fit. I mean, it could certainly be what they're up to here. Well, let me try to focus this a little bit more by asking who is the one who is really different on this planet? We know that the colonists all descended from a small group of people and that the narrator's mother is at least fair-skinned, but David is also very fair. And so my question is, at this point, it's confused in the text as to who is really the different one, even though the narrator describes himself as the we of the descendants of the colonists, though we know he is maybe not a descendant of the colonists. Well, we get these demi-mondanes who are in the room laughing at the narrator as he's trying to puzzle this out. You called attention to the description of the father as being hatchet-faced when we were doing the recap. I think it's clear that the physical appearance of this family is something that stands out in Port Mimizan, possibly on the whole planet, that they all physically look different from everyone else who's around them. They, of course, all look exactly like each other is something I think we're starting to really uh, put together here, right? So clearly, although the narrator still thinks of himself as being the control or the standard or the norm, he's really the the deviation here on this planet. And that is maybe the surface level reading of why these these women, these sex slaves, laugh when he is saying this, because he looks so starkly different from their perspective. It might also be because they're abos and they know it. Right. Well, I want to question really deeply whether or not anybody knows they're an abo, if indeed there are any abos on the planet, though. I think at this point, with this much focus being placed on that question, this is the core question of the story. And I want to say that Wolf here is making an argument that humans are far more than their biology. I want to suggest that there would be a massive cultural problem if a people were forced to imitate a group of other people at a certain point in their history when they encounter them without ever knowing their full history. They just take on a biological imitation. You know, you're a historian, and maybe you could answer, what kind of extrapolations would such an event cause a people to make about the species they're imitating? And if the only contact came from that event and later and infrequent settlers or colonists from that event— how would that society actually be able to develop in any meaningful way? And in my clustered question style, do you think that speaks to some of the rot and anachronism on this planet? I do, but I really want to hear your thoughts, Glenn. Yeah, so I'll go on record and say that I don't actually think that everyone is an abo and they know it. Uh, I just want to play the devil's advocate, advocating for that reading, I suppose. Thinking about what it would actually be like to be a sentient person who has the biological ability to mimic other forms, other forms of life, maybe. I mean, that is a thing that's almost impossible to really empathize with, to really imagine, you know, being so biologically different than what it means to be a homo sapiens. But I cannot believe that change in form, even if it was down to the level of actual DNA or or chromosomes to use the imagery that's present in the story, I still don't see the relationship there between that fact and your culture, right? Your values, your beliefs, your social systems, your social structures. 
So I don't really think that if there was such a creature as a mimic and that these aboriginals, these abos were something like that, they encountered human settlers and decided to take their form for whatever reason, that certainly doesn't make them human. That doesn't make them homo sapiens now. They would still retain something of their identity, that this is just the form that would be changing, not the internal core of it. So on the face of it, I think Vale's hypothesis is absurd and is silly. Let me bring up something that I just was thinking about while you were explaining why my question and why Vale's hypothesis is ultimately very silly. Uh, Madeline Langle's whole whole series of books about Meg Murray O'Keefe uh, that begin with The Wrinkle in Time actually do cover this sort of event happening where a group of, um, I guess, Celts or, or Nordics or somebody from a totally different race at the time finds America and does kind of settle in with the Native Americans. And you have this whole group of Native Americans that have fair skin and light eyes as a result of this. I think as I think about this and Wolf's explicit reference to the Celts and Scotland and Ireland and Wales, that he has something like this on his mind in the early, very early settlement of America, of what would happen of total assimilation, where there's maybe no way to get home. Now, we know that the Abos would have come from a spaceship from St. Anne, because there are no native beings to this sister planet. And that perhaps being that there was no way to get home, and maybe the distance in time between the colonists arriving and really settling, that it became germane to survival to totally take on the form and perceived culture of the species that they encountered at the time, the same way this early European settlers in North America didn't really leave. So given that that might be the case, (laughs) what do you make of this ability to adapt culturally when all you have to go on is biology and maybe advanced artifacts like a robot, like a holograph, but it seems like nothing else is really advanced in this planet technologically? I'm glad you brought up Madeline Langle. Of course, Wrinkle in Time is uh, actually one of the books that we just gave out as wedding favors, really just actually almost exactly a month ago as we're recording this. So something you've brought up here about two different sentient species living together with one of them being hidden, or its identity as being separate, being hidden, being veiled, perhaps, we might say, in fact, is something that jumped out to me in the text as well. That You're going to Madeline Langle, and you're sort of thinking about the settlement of the Americas. But to my mind, when Wolf is bringing up Celts and bringing up gypsies, you know, these are the culture groups in Europe that are sometimes regarded as being kind of magical, kind of fairy-like. And so what I envisioned was... Wolf thinking actually quite a bit about people like Robert E. Howard and Arthur Machen, people we know that he's read, how they, in fact, envisioned that the British Isles, Britain, Scotland, Wales, Ireland had, in fact, another non-human, non-Neanderthal sentient race that lived there at the same time as the first Homo sapiens were moving to Britain, and that this is the sort of primordial thing that we are remembering in all of our literal fairy tales, right? Our tales about fairies are actually about this other sentient race. And of course, those stories really hinge on, we think they've all vanished, but in fact, they haven't. And so 
what I was dismissing as being silly and absurd is the idea that everyone on St. Anne and everyone on this planet is an abo, except for the handful of clones in the Maison de Chien. Now, if what you're suggesting is that, well, maybe some, in fact, maybe most of the people here are actual homo sapiens from Earth, but that, that there were some abos who did, in fact, mimic, take on the form of homo sapiens and are living undetected among this populace. I think that's really more what Wolf is hinting at, though the language of the hypothesis does not stipulate that. It's not at all what I'm suggesting, and uh, I, I am sticking to the language of the hypothesis that it really is the case that this shipwreck has taken place. This spaceship maybe has resulted in a group of abos who were forced to adapt to survive and that the imitation actually was perfect. And we do have a race in atrophy. And the interesting question to me raised is they are forced to pretend given a set of artifacts that they have to extrapolate the history on, the history of their new sense of being on. To me, that's just a really fun question to engage with. And I'm looking forward to see if Wolf engages with it further in this story and in the trilogy of novellas, the two novellas that follow. Yeah, I think what you're getting at, Brandon, really is is something more like these sorts of stories that we get in ensemble speculative fiction TV shows where wouldn't it be funny if everyone woke up, but they'd all lost their memory and have to cobble together their identities based on what they're wearing, based on the things they find in their wallets. And of course, the fun for us as an audience is that we know exactly who they are and now we're watching them get it all wrong. Right. That seems like the sort of thing that you're invoking here. Right. That's a sort of tabula rasa joke of, of like a TV series is, is how do we extrapolate identity from artifact? And that's a really fun thing to watch on TV. It's a, it's a very cool storytelling technique. It's a great idea. I don't really see that happening here because to me, one of the things that's so awesome about this story is that the world that Wolf is building seems so real to me, seems so right. It does not seem like the poor attempt to reconstruct a human civilization by aliens who don't actually know anything about it. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that that's the case because we have multiple generations of this sort of imitation and breeding as pretend humans potentially going on so that you have a society in stagnation. And I'm suggesting that's why words like demi-mundane and works of Dickens and the society stuck in this time period where they rarely are visited by the stars. Their technology isn't advanced beyond what we see of the robot and the holographs is that everybody, it's stuck in time because there's no history. There's no sense of what to do next, how to actually evolve culturally. Yeah, I don't think the text supports that. And, and here's here's where I'll point to that we do have a rich history of this planet and not just the first colonists on St. Anne and their encounter with the Abos. These words that you're pointing to as seeming stagnant, uh, demi-mondaine, nymph de bois, these are holdovers from when this planet spoke French. And now it speaks English. There's been a change, a historical change, right? A change within the historical memory of this planet that is massive, in which some original French-speaking population have been not 
gotten rid of but have have lost political ascendancy to an English-speaking population that's had a number of changes. The library building, for example, when we're introduced to that, we are given the history of that building as a government headquarters in the old French-speaking days. And since then, much about it has changed. It's no longer a government headquarters. It's a library. It's no longer a building in the middle of a park. It's a building in the middle of slums. There has been change. I don't think that this is a world that is certainly not stagnant uh, or atrophied, though that's a key word in Antonin's speech. And I, I don't know that it is, you know, degrading either. You know, to me, this just seems like a human society or, you know, it just seems like what cultures and societies are like. And it seems deeply historical, deeply contextualized and rooted in its place. Those are all really, really wonderful points. And I'm glad I'm glad kind of our questioning led to all of that being explained because I think we're gonna have a great time really exploring and complicating and, and encountering Vale's hypothesis and who these aboriginals are throughout the rest of this story. But you did bring up kind of this history of colonization. You touched on that in your answer, the history of change as a result of that, of maybe this massive sea change in society, which did happen in England as well, where kind of a lot of French holdover words were left in law and in governance due to the French court being the kind of high class section of England and kind of forming a lot of the laws before England took their country back over. And as a medievalist, I'm never opposed to making equivalencies to the Middle Ages. But, you know, what Wolf has in mind here is New Orleans, which in the early 19th century is still a French-speaking place. And it is not when we get into the, the Gilded Age proper, or at least not fully. Uh, the French-speaking population has lost political control to English speakers, but that these French words have persisted for technical vocabulary. We're mostly seeing that here in this world about different types of terms for prostitutes and slaves. But we, you know, you go to New Orleans, you get this for food, you get this for music. And of course, all the street names are in French as well. I think that's the real historical analog that Wolf is using here. Yeah. Again, another excellent example of kind of colonization and, and, and kind of this massive change that takes place as another group within the colony gets power. You know, I guess all of my questioning up to this point, regardless of the theories of the text, are really leading up to this. Like, what what do you think Wolf is really saying about colonialism as a practice in terms of the attitudes of the colonizers and colonized, and, and explicitly of the forced imitation and adaptation of these cultural traits, of the adaptation of a new history? Well, clearly, this is a really ugly society, right? This is a slave society. It is a society that even outside of slavery seems to have real distinctions of class, a real wealth disparity, really at the, at the core of its identity. It is a society that is built on the oppression of the majority by a powerful, a, a, in fact, a, a technologically powerful minority. And I don't think that Wolf is praising that here. I don't think Wolf is advocating that. He's not holding this up as a model of a society that he thinks would be a good one to go live in. In fact, I think if we go back to think about what he was doing in Operation Ares, that this certainly would not be the thing that he's, he's advocating. 
But to get to your point here about cultural assimilation, uh, really about assimilating the identity of your oppressors, of your the new settlers, the new colonists, that's really at the heart of Vale's hypothesis. Whether or not Vale's hypothesis is going to turn out to be true, that is something that clearly has happened in the history of this planet, or at least of Port Mimizan, in which a second wave of settlers have arrived who are of a different culture, who are English-speaking as opposed to French-speaking, and have taken control of this city and perhaps of the whole planet. And while they have not probably numerically displaced or biologically displaced, we should say, the French settlers, those people have had to assimilate to the English-speaking culture, at least in a lot of ways. And so it is really interesting to see the two levels of that work in here, the one where it has clearly historically happened on this planet, but then this hypothesis that it also happened with the Abos. Yeah, it's a wonderful question, and and that's really what I was getting at with a lot of my questioning and the tying up of the illusions, uh, ra- wrapping them all up here in this question of, you know, what do you do when, when you have this event, this cultural clash of power and oppression and the need to assimilate the trading of ideas? Now, this has happened peacefully many times throughout the world through merchant activities uh, through trade, where pidgin languages develop and cultural ideas get traded, new music. Uh, we, we, I mean, we've talked about Hegel in the past, uh, and this <laughs> is kind of a way to tell the story of history. But here, something much more brutal is taking place, at least for the history of this planet, to know its own history in terms of this second wave of colonists, but also to suppose if it happened once, it might have happened in this past, this violence and this total assimilation, this this brutal, tyrannical need for the other to totally assimilate and the fear that they may still be out there is maybe Wolf's commentary on the kinds of fears that tyranny produces at the high level of society and the rot it creates at the base level. Yeah, and rot or atrophy certainly is all over this text so far. I keep hearkening back to this disgusting hallway, you know, at the root of the house, right? Atrophy being in play here and talking about Vale's hypothesis. But this also seems to be at play here in the narrator becoming a sickly adolescent. It seems perhaps to be at play in whatever is going on with Aunt Janine's legs, for example, right? That this idea either of something being rotten at the core or the atrophy of abilities through disuse is is really fascinating and seems to be a central theme. Uh, I don't know that we can really make a whole lot of sense of that yet with just, you know, the first two sections that we've covered, but we've got more ahead. Indeed we do. And I think on that note, it's a great time to just wrap up this episode. So I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. That's right. And another one of our projects is our Patreon feed. So Glenn, why don't you tell our listeners what we have in store for them this month for our supporters? Yeah, we actually, in fact, uh, just released a few days before recording this episode, our monthly Patreon episode. This was me and Valerie, my co-host on the Lower Decks, our Star Trek podcast, uh, did a did an extra episode this month covering the classic question mark Star Trek The Next Generation episode 
home soil. This is where we get the definitely classic, no question mark phrase, ugly bags of mostly water. A lot of good discussion about whether or not Riker is better with the beard or without the beard uh, and other psychological insights into Valerie. Very, very important questions that need to be answered. Well, for the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, I encourage you to head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of these sections. I really want to ask our listeners, given what we've read so far, whether or not they can draw a conclusion as to whether or not Vale's hypothesis is the case. I had a lot of fun speculating about its veracity. Uh, Glenn had a lot of fun bringing up textual <laughs> analysis of why it's so it couldn't be the case so far. But I think we're going to continue to pick sides on this battle as we go through this story. Yeah, I look forward to checking in on the forum in a few days and discovering uh, what an obstinate fool I, I have been. Well, Next time, we're going to continue with The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and we're going to read up to page 50 in this 1994 Orb edition that we're using. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>